we see so much variation that there really is no average deer. We've got, I mean, it's a, it's a continuum. And so the, like none of these GPS studies and no matter how much we learn about collared deer and deer movement and deer behavior, it's all fascinating. It's all very essential from, you know, uh, the perspective of moving our science forward, but it will never replace woodsmanship. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we're going to be talking with Luke Resop of the Mississippi State University Deer Lab. Uh, Luke's a graduate student whose research looked into buck home ranges and movements uh, in an area in Mississippi and how there appears to be two different personalities among bucks, uh, sedentary and, and mobile bucks. And I'm going to let him dive into what all that means when we talk to him here in just a few minutes. But hey, if you enjoy hearing about this GPS collar deer research and, and kind of getting a peek inside the behavior of whitetail deer, uh, you're going to enjoy the next two episodes of the podcast because next week we're, we're also we're going to have on Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach of Penn State University, and he's going to dive even further into deer movement and how they respond to hunting pressure from a, a more a more northern perspective you know that's looking at deer in pennsylvania so if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast be sure to do that so you won't miss any of our our upcoming episodes but before we get started today uh, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at matthews archery we've actually just kicked off our 2022 matthews sweepstakes this week uh that that is if you're listening to this the same week it released and we're going to be giving away six uh, custom spec Matthews V3X bows to six lucky winners. And each of those will include an HHA optimizer light sight. And as always, all proceeds raised are going to be going toward our mission of ensuring the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So be sure to head over to DeerAssociation.com. Click on that big Matthew sweepstakes banner on our homepage and uh, get your chances for that before they're gone. And one more thing before we get on the phone here with Luke. I, I know I mentioned this on the last episode, but it it's worth repeating. We're still offering that special NDA membership for our podcast listeners. You can join NDA for a year. You can get that quality Whitetails magazine and a special NDA cap to help support our mission uh, for just 30 bucks. That That's $5 off the regular price. Plus, we're throwing in that NDA cap to kind of sweeten up the deal. So don't miss out on that opportunity. And even if you're a current member, you can you can still use this offer to extend your membership by year, and you'll still get that free cap. So just, just head over to DeerAssociation.com, click on that Join or Renew button right there at the top of our pay homepage, and use the promo code PODCAST. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone here with uh, Luke Resop and talk about deer home ranges and movement and uh, just some of the cool research he's been involved with. Hey, Luke, but before we dive into uh, some of your deer research, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of, I guess, what led you down this path to, to studying deer at Mississippi State? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me on, Brian. I'm excited to be here and be chatting about some of the cool stuff we've been doing down here in uh, muggy Mississippi. 
Um, I'm, I kind of, you know, I listen to, you know, a lot of y'all's podcasts and, you know, other podcasts. And I think the answer I most often hear to that question is, you know, I grew up a hunter because my dad was a hunter and my dad's dad was a hunter, um, which is great. And that's how, you know, a lot of, a lot of us come up, you know, through this and we're introduced to it from a young age, but, um, I'm a little different in that regard. My dad, you know, he hunted when he was younger, but you know, he didn't take me uh, hunting when I was a kid. Um, you know, we'd spend a lot of time in the woods and we lived out in the country. And I, you know, would my favorite thing to do was, you know, run outside and sit down in the woods for 30 or 45 minutes, just quietly with my back up against a tree and just kind of watch the woods, forget that I was there and watch the squirrels come back out and all the songbirds start flying around. And that's kind of how my love for all of this you know, all of the natural world kind of started. And, um, I guess kind of moving on into my high school and college years, I, uh, bounced around a little bit in undergrad, but I ended up going to Virginia tech, um, and studied wildlife conservation there. Um, and that's really when I fell in love with whitetail deer and whitetail deer research. You know, I'd been, uh, I'd started bow hunting a couple years before that. I started bow hunting when I was 18 and I actually killed my first deer, um, with, a left I'm right-handed but I killed my first deer with a left-handed bow that the draw the draw length was like three inches too short for me and if you you know if any of you know me or have seen me you know that's not a surprise because I'm uh tall and lanky so like I was shooting like a 28 inch bow and I have a closer to a 32 inch draw <laughs> length yeah um but you know I killed my first deer when I was 18 with my bow and I absolutely fell in love with it um, and just going through undergrad, I really developed a passion for, um, deer and deer biology. And more recently in the last, I don't know, probably three or four years, I've really, uh, begun to focus on habitat management stuff and prescribed fire. So, um, I really just love to talk about all of it. I love to research all of it. So we're, we're here to, um, talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, a, a lot of the folks we do have on here are ex- exactly like you said, you know, they were, they were brought up in a hunting family or, or whatever, but, uh, but I'm, I'm right there with you. I actually, I'm the same way. I came from a, a non-hunting family, my, uh, same thing. My dad hunted, you know, when he was younger and my grandfather hunted when he was younger, but by, by the time I took an interest, they had, they had done put it away. So I, I kind of had to learn by trial and error, but, yep. but yeah, I, I can understand that part of it, but. But yeah, I definitely, I wanted to get you on here because I know, you know, you've been involved with some pretty cool research there at the the MSU Deer Lab, and uh, you presented some of that at this year's Southeast Deer Study Group meeting. And so, you know, as, a, as an avid deer hunter myself, I'm, I'm always fascinated by these these GPS collared deer studies. Uh, you know, they just give us, kind of give us a pretty cool sneak peek and in, in, inside to uh, this, these daily daily deer behavior and, and movement. And I, I know our members always enjoy that content as well. I mean, we, we, it's always well received in any of the articles and stuff that we do uh, surrounding that. So I knew this would be a, a, a great episode to have as, as we start inching closer and closer to deer season here every yeah, day. You know, absolutely. Everybody's uh, turkey season's kind of wound up and, and people are slowly turning their attention to, to deer season this fall. So um, I, I think it'll be very timely. Yep, antlers are antlers are growing. The our bucks in the pen, you know, they're they're already putting on 
they've already got their brow tines about four or five inches of them and g2s are popping so it's getting that time of year oh yeah yeah I, I usually wait a little while before i start putting cameras out but i just uh i couldn't help myself this year i, I didn't get out much to turkey hunt so I needed to get out of the house and I went ahead and started throwing some, some trail cameras out on some public land here around me and be looking forward to, to checking those here in a, a month or so. so. Yeah. You, you, you made a comment a minute ago about how, you know, you kind of came up in a, this is, I just randomly thought of this, but you made a comment a minute ago about how you came up in a non-traditional, you know, family and, you know, you, your dad and granddad didn't show you all the ropes and that's how it was for me. And that is exactly the excuse I use when people ask me why I don't kill more deer, I say that I say <laughs> yeah. that I've had to teach it all to myself and that's why I'm bad at it. So. Yeah. Yep. I've used that exact same line. Yeah. I'm self-taught. So that explains, you know, why, yep. why I'm a, a mediocre hunter at best. Yep. Exactly. So anyway, random aside. Yeah. Yeah. So w- with that in mind, I, I guess just start off by telling us uh, or giving us an idea of kind of how this research project came about and what, what questions were you initially looking to answer with it? Yeah, so this um I'm I'm kind of in a little bit of a unique role here because the research project that I presented at Southeast Deer Study this most recent year, this is an extension of research that we were doing at the MSU MSU Deer Lab, you know, starting in 2016 and the the main portion of the project was from 2016 through 2018 into 2019 a little bit. Um and the majority of that research was done uh, with Colby Henderson and Ashley Chance. They were the graduate students on the project. Um, and so we were partnering with MDWFMP, our state wildlife agency, to look at a bunch of buck movement stuff. So all of the research we're going to be talking about today and then all of the research that, you know, Colby and Ashley were working on with some of this GPS data. It was all on adult bucks. So we're talking two and a half years old and older. Um, So some of the original questions they wanted to answer was how hunting pressure influenced deer movement, how deer movement rates changed throughout the hunting season, um, where deer went when hunters would, you know, say that they they thought that deer just, you know, seems like they mysteriously disappear for months (laughs) on end. Um, just a lot of the questions that, you know, our state agency biologists and we get from hunters and land managers about what deer do during the hunting season, during the summer, that's kind of what this research project was targeted to answer. Okay. Now I know you guys, even, even today are, are sharing some pretty cool stuff, some, some infographics and information about deer movement on your, on your social media channels, the MSU deer lab channels is that from this research or is that something different that's ongoing so some of some of what we post is from the deer that were collared as part of colby and ashley's project and then um like buck 140 and some of the other deer we've posted about more recently you know he's the one that's in louisiana right now and he lives in mississippi during the um fall and winter during the rut and then you know late winter, early spring, he swims the Mississippi River into Louisiana and hangs out in soybean fields. So him and several of the other deer that we post about, they were collared more recently um, as part of another project. And so we're still actively tracking those deer and they're still actively a part of research projects we've got going on. So some of the stuff that I, you know, we talked about at Southeast Deer Study Group, um, that was actually a combination of the deer from Colby and Ashley's project that they worked on. And then some of the stuff that, you know, me and 
um, my advisors and some other cooperators have been working on in the last two or three years. So I guess one of the one of the you know logical transitions there is that the some of the crazy behaviors that we and I know we'll get into more of this in a minute, but some of the crazy behaviors that we observed initially in the Big Black River region um, of Mississippi, which is kind of west central Mississippi, they aren't isolated to just there. You know, we've got we've got deer collaring projects going on in other parts of the state and deer are doing the same stuff. So it's not like this is just some weird little local genetic anomaly going on that's causing deer to do some of these weird things. It's it's more widespread than that. Right, right. And and how many deer total were collared? You said they're all adult bucks. How many were you were you looking at, I guess, for your study? So I was looking at um thirty individuals. Colby and Ashley collared, I mean, we had I think sixty 67 on that project and we've collared pretty close to a dozen um in the last couple of years as part of a another project but i looked at 30 deer for this project um and the reason you know we didn't use all 67 individuals or however many it was is because we wanted to make sure we had ample data time frame wise so in order for a deer to qualify you know to be included in this uh, study that we're talking about today, they had to have at least 365 days worth of consecutive GPS data. Um, so 30 bucks met that criteria and then an additional 14 bucks. Well, the 14 were part of the original 30, but 14 of those 30 had a second year worth of data. So we had 30 individual bucks, but you know, they had, we had 44, essentially 44 buck years worth of data to look at. Okay. And did the did the sixteen were they harvested or did some of them just die? So, well, some of them, you know, or? some some collars fell off. Um, of some of them, some of them were harvested by hunters. Some of them got hit by cars. Some of them, you know, EHD, just a number of things. Okay, gotcha. And so y'all did. It sounds like y'all were monitoring these deer year round. Then it wasn't just looking at a specific season or. Oh yeah, we were monitoring them year round. So because because part of the study was a, a lot of the study was focused on how these adult bucks behave and move and their home range distribution during the hunting season. We had our GPS collars taking a location every fifteen minutes okay. during the hunting season. That was now, the next question. <laughs> so so it'd be great to be able to do that, you know, three hundred and sixty five days out of the year, but you know, we're limited in terms of how much battery these GPS collars have and how much storage they have on board, et cetera. So during the hunting season, the collars were fixing every 15 minutes. And then during the non-hunting season, they were fixing every four hours. So for the the study that the buck personality stuff that we're going to talk about today, we actually thinned down all of the data to a consistent fix rate of four hours throughout the entire year. So although we had GPS data for every 15 minutes throughout the hunting season, we were only looking at data for every four hours so we could, you know, make comparisons between the hunting season and non hunting season. Okay. I got you. And as part of this, did you guys go out and, and assess like the habitat conditions and, and the locations where these deer were using to, you know, kind of get an understanding maybe why they were using some areas over others or, or was that a part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Colby Henderson, that was, uh, one of the, 
one of the aspects of his research and, you know, his, some of the analyses that he did found what, you know, most hunters would suspect. And it's that deer use areas with really thick, dense screening cover more than uh, open bottomland hardwood forest, for example. So the way they, the way they did that study was they looked at all of the, all of the bucks location data, all of the points that he had on a map. And they looked at his most used um, areas and areas on the map that were least used, right? So they kind of broke up his home range into a grid. And then they looked at his most used grid cells versus the grid cells with um, with no points that were directly adjacent to the ones with a lot of points. And that's important. You know, it's not like they were just on the periphery of his home range and he wasn't there. It's like the areas that he was not using, they were directly adjacent to areas that he was using heavily. And so Colby went out and sampled those areas and the, we've got some cool videos online that um, I can send you links to on our YouTube channel um, showing some drone footage and some other pictures of what those areas looked like. But the, the amount of vertical structure and the difference between areas where bucks were using and where they weren't was incredibly, incredibly apparent. Um, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, pretty much the only way you could see the bucks, um, that Colby actually took out like a, a plastic deer decoy, like life-size bedded down buck and put out in some of these areas, you know, uh, adjacent unused area and then the heavily used area. And really the only way you could see that buck in the heavily used area was from the drone from directly above. Like if you were standing there 10 feet away, 20 feet away, he was very difficult to see. So, which I was going to get into this more a little later in the talk, but but just while we're, while we're here, so were they actually getting in in the middle of this thick cover and bedding, or is it more like you know putting it to their back, right on the edge of the the heavy cover? To the to the best of my understanding, um, they were in the middle of it, like they had three hundred and you know sixty degree screening cover all the way around, and it's not like they were. You know, we hear people say a lot that bucks will bed with their back to thick cover or with their back to the wind so they can smell what's behind them and see what's in front of them. Um, You know, there might be some truth to that kind of stuff. And I'm sure, you know, there are individual deer like we were talking about earlier. There are individual deer who do unique things like that. But from the best that we can tell with, you know, the numerous studies that have been done and the study that Colby did, they were in the middle of the cover, not betting on the edge of it, looking out into the middle of bottomland hardwood forest. Right. Okay. Well, as far as the results from from what you were actually looking at, your your portion of it, let's let's start with what you discovered as far as home ranges for these deer, because I know that was a, a big part of your presentation at the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting. Um, what what did you see there as far as home ranges and and how did it differ among these? these 30 bucks. Okay. So, um, well, I'll, I'll back up and provide a little bit of context because I kind of been beating around the bush a little bit. So, um, one of the reasons we started this analysis that we're talking about today in the first place was because, you know, when Colby and Ashley's GPS data started to come in and they got, you know, four months worth of data, you know, they had collars on bucks for four months and then they had six months worth of data, a year worth of data. They started noticing really, unusual 
movements and really unusual home range shapes and really unusual patterns with how these deer were behaving. And I say unusual in the context of the South. Um, some of the deer that they were looking at were essentially migrating between spatially separated home ranges, which, you know, that's, that's what deer are supposed to do in the North, right? Or wherever they're really extreme seasonal resource fluctuations, deer migrate, you know, to balance, you know, resource requirements with what's available in the landscape. Um, and traditionally deer just don't do that in the South because, or we didn't think deer did that in the South because, you know, our growing seasons are really long. Winters aren't that severe. Um, resources are fairly evenly distributed on the landscape. So that's just generally not, we didn't think it was super advantageous for these deer to be living somewhere during the summer and then packing up shop and moving, you know, X number of miles, you know, just in a matter of a couple of days and hanging out over there for a few months. It just doesn't, there doesn't seem to be as obvious um, a biological justification for those kind of behaviors. So when Colby and Ashley's data started rolling in and they started to see some of these deer making these migratory movements, you know, it kind of sparked a question um, for them and for Dr. Damaris and Dr. Strickland, who were my advisors um, into, you know, how many bucks are doing this? You know, what are, can we characterize some of these movements and kind of classify them? Um, what are the differences in home ranges? And then ultimately, you know, we'd love to know what the adaptive significance of these movements are, but that's kind of out of the scope of this project today. So um, I guess in, in summary, we, we were able to classify two distinct personalities is what we're calling them two distinct personalities of bucks so we've got the sedentary bucks um and those are the ones that have a you know just a typical home range like if you uh put down imagine you put down a, a satellite image of your hunting property or whatever you printed it out put it down on the table and you took your coffee cup turned it upside down and put it on the table and drew a circle around it that's basically what a lot of these bucks home ranges would look like all of their points, the majority of their points were concentrated inside of that one area. And they, you know, they go on excursions sometimes, which we'll talk about too. They go on ex excursions and leave their home range, but they'd come right back within, you know, a few hours. And by and large, 95% of their points were within that coffee cup circle. Um, and then on the other hand, we've got these mobile bucks. And mobile bucks, it's basically like you had your first coffee cup and then you took another one four and a half miles away and drew another circle. And these deer, you know, they're living for, you know, X number of months at a time in one coffee cup. And then they pack up shop all of a sudden, bam. And they're, you know, the, the shortest distance we had a mobile buck travel was, you know, I think three quarters of a mile between his home range segments. Um, the farthest difference we distance we've had a mobile buck travel is 18 miles between his home range segments. Wow. And that's buck 140. Um, so, and I don't, I don't want to, I do not want to make it seem like we're just talking about the dudes here because, you know, the, we didn't have any does collared for Colby and Ashley study, but we've since in the, in the last couple of years, we've been putting collars out on does. And this is one of the most incredible things in my mind. When I pulled up her GPS points and looked at them, my mind was absolutely blown. I thought that, you know, we, we had been thinking that buck 140 was the anomaly and he was just, you know, mobile personality on steroids because he goes 18 miles between his home range segments. We've got a doe that she's got 
24, 24 and a half miles between her home range segments. And she's basically next door neighbors with buck 140. Um, straight line distance is like 24 miles between her home range segments. But if you follow her path, the way that she traveled, it was more like 35 miles, which is just like, what in the world was going on here? You know what I mean? I'm, we think that some of that in uh, some of the study sites is because of flooding. So Buck 140, he lives in the Mississippi Delta. This doe that we're talking about, she lives, you know, we collared her on the same property that we collared Buck 140 on. And, you know, when we get into winter, late winter, early spring, and it, we get a lot of rain up north, and then all the floodwaters kind of move into the Mississippi Delta, that river will rise a lot. And the property that we collared them on is, I don't know, I'm guessing um i'm guessing three to four miles from the mississippi river banks and when the river really comes up when it's in flood stage it'll basically flood out the entire property that they were living on so they're unless they want to be aquatic you know what i mean they they they're pretty much forced to go somewhere else so we think that's what's going on there but that certainly doesn't explain all of the mobile personality because you know we see about 33% of the adult bucks that we collar, one third of them, 33% are going to have a mobile personality. And we see that same percentage in the Delta where there's all of this flooding, but we see about 33% of the, of the adult bucks, they have the mobile personality in the big black region. And, you know, the big black river is there, but it doesn't flood anywhere near like the Mississippi river. Um, some of the mobile bucks, they were never in proximity to the river let alone a flooded river that we can tell. So that, you know, it might be flooding in some areas, but that certainly, certainly doesn't explain all of it. Yeah. Have you found any outside factors? I guess that would, I mean, is this, is this older bucks that are tending to, to be mobile or, or sedentary versus the other? Or, I mean, have you found any correlation between any other factors like that? Or does it just seem pretty individual, I guess? Um, we've looked at that some and, you know, we, we, when we collar all these deer, we age them with uh tooth wear and replacement. Um, and we collared bucks that were two and a half years old that did this stuff. We had bucks collared that, you know, were six and a half years old when we called them and we had a collar on them for a year or two. So they were seven and a half by the time it was all said and done and they were doing it. Um, so it, it really doesn't seem that there's any relationship between age and, you know, personality. You know, it's kind of intuitive that, you know, some of the younger bucks would be bouncing around a lot and just high energy like, you know, young kiddos are. Um, and then as they got older, they kind of figured out the landscape better. They figured out where risks were. They figured out where resources were. They figured out where breeding opportunities were. It would make sense that they'd kind of settle down. You know what I mean? So you'd go from a young mobile buck trying to figure out what it's all about. And then when he got to, you know, somewhere around maturity, four or five years old, he might settle down and have a sedentary personality. And that very well might happen. But out of the, you know, 30 deer that we have and the uh, 14 deer that we have two years worth of data for, not a single one of them has done that. So that's the, I guess that's the best way I can answer that. I would love to know what is causing this. It's, it's really hard to say. Um and I think there are probably some very fascinating fitness level um, things going on here where, you know, sedentary bucks, they are likely exposed to less risk, um, but they might not have as many breeding opportunities. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're hanging out in 
So the the sedentary buck average home range size is 780 acres and change. So just under 800 acres is the average home range size for a sedentary buck. Average mobile buck, 12,000 acres. Golly. So like that, I mean, that's just like what in the world, you know what I mean? But, you know, keep in mind that our, we don't have a huge sample size here. So we've only got 30 individual deer. Um, and we've got a couple deer like buck 140 who blow that number. Like, you know, they're outliers. So they're really pulling up that average. If you remove buck 140 and buck 27, you know, he's got 13 miles between his home range segments. If you remove them from the data set, it brings that average down to, you know, two to 4,000 acres somewhere in there. But, you know, from a, from a survival fitness level standpoint, we, it's, we are assuming, we don't know this, we haven't tested this and it would be kind of hard to study, even though we'd you know, love to do it. We are assuming that sedentary bucks are exposed to less risk. You know what I mean? They're, they're hanging out in on one or two or three properties. They know their home range very well. Um, they're not traveling like crazy, but you know, they're, they're still going on some excursions, uh, mostly during the breeding, se- breeding season, potentially to look for, you know, receptive does. Um, but they've pretty much got access to what, whatever's in their home range, but these mobile bucks, you know, they've, they're essentially working with two home ranges. So they potentially have access to double the resources as the sedentary bucks, but they're also potentially is potentially exposed to double the risk. Um, not only because they have two home range segments, but because they're traveling between those two home range segments, crossing roads and rivers and highways and, you know, people's lawns and hunters tree stands and. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, and I guess I don't have a good answer to that question. <laughs> so it sounds like there there hasn't been any crossover as far as you didn't see one buck the first year that was mobile, and then suddenly the second year he was sedentary or vice versa. I mean, they pretty much pretty consistent from the two years you looked at them. That is correct. We don't have any bucks that, you know, changed between a sedentary and a mobile personality one year to the next. Um we do, however, um, so like I said a minute ago, two thirds, about two thirds of the deer in our data set are sedentary. About one third is mobile. We actually went in and broke uh, broke down the mobile personality into sub personalities with unique characteristics. So within mobile bucks, so this is all this what I'm about to talk about. This is all mobile bucks um, and not not including sedentary bucks. We broke up mobile bucks into either shifters or bouncers. Um, so the bouncer mobile bucks, if you imagine, you know, your your two home ranges on a map, your two coffee cups on your satellite image, the bouncer bucks are basically like pinballs between those two, and they're bouncing back and forth all the time. They'll spend, you know, a week or two in one home range and bounce back and forth a couple times, and then they might spend a month there, and then they'll bounce bounce back and forth a couple times. And then a lot of these guys, the bouncer bucks, you get to the breeding season, and it is like it's almost constant pinballing back and forth. And they are just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, presumably that's, you know, in search of some kind of breeding opportunity. Um, so you've got the bouncers. That's about 80% of our mobile bucks. The majority of them are pinballing back and forth. And then 21% of our mobile bucks are what we categorized as shifters. Um, the shifters, they, when they're in a home range segment, they're in that home range segment, you know, and then they'll pack up shop after, 
an average, I think the average was 79 days or something. So, you know, just under three months, um, they'd be in a home range segment for about three months and then pack up shop and go to their other home range segment and be there indefinitely until that three month period was over and they wouldn't really leave. They wouldn't really go on excursions. They were more of the homebodies of the mobile bucks. Um, and one of the reasons we think that is we only had three deer that we categorized as shifters and they all just so happened to be bucks that had crazy distances separating their home range segments, which makes, I think, which I think makes some sense, you know, buck 140, buck 27, you know, they got 13 and 18 miles separating their home range segments. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense energetically to be bouncing back and forth between, you know, 18 and 13 miles separated home ranges <laughs> frequently. So they just no. do it, you know, two or three times a year. Yeah, that, w- that would probably catch up with them pretty quick if they were bouncing back and forth that much of a distance. Man, that, that is interesting. Now, the I know it was only a few deer, I guess, that are, that are these shifters, but does the shift take place about the same time for each of these? I mean, is it like a it's all a summer shift or, mm. or is it different times of year? So, um, yes and no. If you look at an individual buck, um, especially the ones that we have two years worth of data for, um, I guess really only the ones that we have two years worth of data for an individual deer is very consistent in his, uh, in the timing that he shifts between home ranges from year to year. I mean, some deer literally do it on the exact same day. And it's like, I don't ask me how they have an internal clock like that. And I have no idea. Like it's, it's incredible. Like 365 days from when he made that shift last year, he does it the next year. And then a lot of the bucks, you know, they'll do it within, you know, 10 to 14 days of when they did it the previous year, they'll move. But I mean, either way, like having a two week precision on when you need to pack up shop and move when you have, when you're not wearing a watch on your hoof, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's pretty impressive. So individual bucks, yes, very consistent. If you look at um, all of the mobile bucks, their, you know, their timing in which they shift between home range segments all over the place. The only months that we don't have any bucks shifting between home range segments is October and December. Um, we can talk about a little bit why we think that might be, but it would be more speculation than anything. But um, they, they're they really going back and forth between home range segments at all times of year. Some bucks, they do it a lot in the summer, and then they're pretty, you know, they're hanging out in their home range for most of the rut. Some bucks, they're shifting a lot during the rut and hanging out during the summer. Some bucks fall, some bucks spring. So it's kind of all over the place. Well, you, you brought it up, so now I got to ask you to speculate. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think they're not shifting in uh, October and December? <laughs> um, so, one of the reasons we think they are not shifting in October and December is because those are the months when we see the highest uh, frequency of excursions. So, um for for anyone who's not familiar with the term excursion that's just what we mean when uh, an animal doesn't have to be a deer but you know we commonly talk about it with deer when they go on a um, short duration trip out of their home range you know it's generally it's got to be at least you know half a mile or a mile to be considered an excursion so they go on the short duration trip out of their home range and they come right back um and so we see we see a lot of those excursions in October and 
uh, December and really all throughout the out, all throughout the hunting season, we see a lot of those movements. So it's possible that you know they're they're so busy going on excursions and you know in those months that they're just not bouncing back and forth between their home ranges. I don't really know, but that's that's just one of the only things we can come up with. And I don't, I'm not completely satisfied with that explanation. So don't take that home to mama. <laughs> there you go. Well, I guess th- this all certainly explains why uh, why some guys. You know, you'll you'll hear them talking about they'll get, you know, those pictures all summer long of that buck. They want to they want to target this fall. And then, you know, right before deer season suddenly disappears. And, you know, some guy three miles away shoots him on his farm. Yes. You know, later, later that season. So, yes, absolutely. And we, you know, get, I want to give a lot of credit to the hunters here because they were noticing this stuff. I mean, way before I was, um, I can't speak for, you know, all the all the people who were involved in this project, but. I know like we get we get messages on our social media and emails from hunters who say they've been noticing this stuff for years. And they're like, well, thank you for finally noticing what we've been telling you for, you know, years. But I mean, we hear all the time of, you know, guys will have a they'll have a buck on their property on a few trail cameras all summer long. And then, you know, all of a sudden they got a buddy or a friend of a friend or a cousin or whatever that lives, you know, across town or 10, 15 miles away. And that buck shows up there all of a sudden and then they end up killing him. And so, you know, first of all, that begs the question of what's going on there. Like how common is that? And we finally got some numbers to, you know, kind of provide some evidence as to how common that is. Um, but it also kind of shows that this is not an anomaly. You know what I mean? Like there's a 33% of bucks are doing this and in multiple areas, it's not like this is happening in one study site. Like I mentioned earlier, this is in multiple areas. I don't know if this is happening in, you know, other states, it very well may be, but it certainly happened in, in central Mississippi. Yeah. Now, did you look at core areas at all, kind of within these home ranges? And we did. And yep. What What did that look like? And did it differ between these mobile bucks versus the, the sedentary bucks? Yeah. So um, part of part of the issue with um, I'm going to get real nerdy sciencey for a minute. So if you don't, <laughs> don't want to listen to okay. this, if, you, if y'all don't want to listen to this, just skip ahead probably 45 seconds or something. Um, so part of the issue with estimating home range size for these mobile bucks is that there is a lot of uncertainty when you run the home range estimator. There's a lot of uncertainty as to where that animal is going to be because they are, you know, one day they're here and then one day they're 18 miles away. So because there's a lot of uncertainty and they spend time in two very different places, when you run the home range estimator on them, and it depends on there's different kinds of home range estimators, there's kernel density and there's browning bridges and all sorts of stuff, minimum convex polygons. But um, some home range estimators are a lot more conservative than others and give you a more reliable estimate for these mobile buck home ranges. So like KDEs, for example, the way that they estimate, they it makes it look like these mobile buck home ranges are huge. And there might be a mile or two or three miles of empty space between the buck's farthest point and his home range contour. Um, Browning bridges, on the other hand, are more conservative and they're they're more designed to actually look at kind of movements like this, some migratory movements and stuff. Um, so I say all of that to say that um, you just got to be really careful 
about which home range estimator we're talking about when you're making inferences about home range size, especially when it gets into mobile deer versus sedentary deer. So um, back to your original question. Sorry about that. <laughs> that no, it's okay. No, it's okay. Random tangent. Um, the the sedentary bucks, their fifty percent core areas. If we're looking at a KDE estimate, is about one hundred and fifty acres. Their ninety five percent home range, where they spend, you know, simply ninety five percent of their time, is about eight hundred acres. So fifty percent of they're spending about fifty percent of their time in a hundred and fifty acre area. Um, the mobile bucks, if you're looking at the KDE estimate, their core area is 2,200 acres, which, I mean, that's that's three times as, that's almost three times as big as the 95% home range of the sedentary bucks. Yeah. So their core area is three times as big as the whole home range of the sedentary bucks. So that's one of the reasons, you know, the kernel density estimates are kind of tricky for this kind of stuff. If we look at a a probably a little bit more accurate way to estimate home ranges. Um, the sedentary bucks are still right around 150 acres for a core range, and the mobile bucks are about 220 acres. So they're a little bit bigger, but they're not significantly larger. What is significantly larger with the mobile bucks is their overall home range. So the take-home point for all of that is that um, if you've got one of these mobile bucks figured out and you know his number and you know where he's, where he's hanging out, you've got just about as good of a chance to kill him as you do with a sedentary buck. Because his core area is about the same size. It just so happens that he's probably got two of them. Now, the, you know, the obvious caveat to that is that if he doesn't have a core area on your property, if he doesn't have a home range period on your property during the hunting season, well, that's you know kind of out of luck. Right. Yeah. That that 150 acre average uh, of the sedentary bucks, the, the core area, 50 percent core area. What what kind of range did you see on that? What kind of what was the the lower end of that and the upper end of that? Do you do you happen to know? Yeah, um, we we had 50 percent core areas as small as 20 acres and change. Um, we had we had one of our bucks. We had two years worth of data for him. And his his overall home range, his ninety five percent home range, where he's spending ninety five percent of his time, was like one hundred and sixty acres. I mean, it was super small. He was like hanging out on the edge of an ag field and stuffing his face with soybeans. And then you know he'd, I mean, he he hardly went anywhere. And we're talking about annual home ranges here. I'm not just talking about during the summer. Like he spent, you know, his whole time that we had a collar on him. He may have very well done something different before and after you know, his, his collar was on him, but for the two years that we had a collar on him, he was spending his time inside, you know, 150 acres. Um, so his core area was like 20, 23 acres, something like that. We've got other sedentary bucks with huge home ranges, you know, a thousand, 1500, uh, 1800 acres, but they're sedentary, right? They don't have two distinct home ranges. They still got one home range, but it's huge. And their core area might be six, 700 acres. So it, it, is extremely variable. And I think really one of the take homes with all of this research, at least for me, and I think for a lot of hunters is that we can put categories and personalities on these deer all we want. And we can say, this is the average home range size. This is the average number of yards that a deer moves per day. This is the average time of day the deer move. And certainly there are trends. Like I'm not trying to say that there's not trends and how all this works because that's, you know, that's how I'm, that's why averages are useful. But 
we see so much variation that there really is no average deer. We've got, I mean, it's a, it's a continuum. And so the, like none of these GPS studies and no matter how much we learn about collared deer and deer movement and deer behavior, it's all fascinating. It's all very essential from, you know, uh, the perspective of moving our science forward, but it will never replace woodsmanship. Like, you know, we've, we've all got to, and I need to get better about this. And, you know, we, we all need to get better about going into the woods. And I know, I know a handful of people that do not need to get better about this. They're very frustrating. <laughs> it's very frustrating yeah. how good they are doing this. I'm kind one of, of them that needs to get better. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> but we all need to, you know, I need to get better about um, spending more time in the woods and, you know, relying less on all of this uh, science data. I don't want to sound like it, the science is not useful because it absolutely is, but it doesn't replace getting out in the woods and figuring out what's actually going on with an individual deer. If your objective is to kill an individual deer, there's no replacement for learning all of his patterns. Um, if you're just trying to kill a deer, you know what I mean? Like this, this kind of information is extremely useful because it'll help you do that. Right. Yep. Yep. Just, uh, like you know, we talked about a good bit actually before we started recording there, but just the, the individuality of these, these animals. And uh, it's why I know we experience it at NDA when, when we post stuff on social media and I'm sure you guys do as well, but you know, you'll, you'll post results from, from some study or what some certain deer is doing. And, uh, there's, there's, you know, somebody right away that's quick to point out, well, the deer on my property don't do that or or they do something completely different. Yep. Absolutely. And yeah, they might because, like you said, they're they're individuals here. They they have different preferences, I guess, just like we do. And yeah, you can't, you can't uh, put them all in one box and say they always do this or that. Yeah, and on the on the flip side of that coin, I think it's also worth noting that unless you've got a GPS collar on these deer or you are glassing them with your binoculars twenty four seven, you really don't know what they're doing. You know, like. Just because you see him on this camera and then, you know, 800 yards away, he's on that camera. Like, you can't just draw a line between the two and assume that's his travel path. He could, that could be the very periphery of his home range and you could be missing 90% of what he's doing. You know what I mean? So, um, it's, they got to work in conjunction together. You got to, you know, kind of use some of this information to maximize your hunting success that, you know, the science world is putting out, but there's still no replacement for, you know, having, having your property peppered with truck cameras and, you know, going that route too. Yeah. Well, I, w- I want to talk s- some more about some of this stuff, some movement and stuff. And I know uh, it may or may not have been a part of your, your research. So if I ask you anything, you know, that, that, that your research or you just haven't looked at, then, then just say so. But I just wanted to uh, see if we could touch maybe on some of this other stuff um, movement wise and, and even like betting, I don't know, did, did you look at betting? And I know you've, we've already talked about this a little bit as far as like, you know, what, what, uh, habitat these deer were selecting for, for betting and whether there were consistencies across these deer. Um, I have not, the, the extent to which I've looked at betting ends with, I think three bucks that we used in a, a just a handful of bucks, it might've been two bucks that we used in a social media post, just showing how their, uh, how their beds change over time and how, from my perspective, inconsistent they are, you know, they're bedding all over the place. Um, however, um, let's put a, 
let's put a bookmark in that because we are currently um, about to start an analysis, not me, but another uh, graduate student in the lab. We're about to start an analysis looking at that exact thing, looking at bedding areas, um, looking at how they change over time, looking at, um, I guess, what we can refer to as their, their circuit time. How long does it take them to return to the same bed? Are they you know, when one buck leaves a bed, is another buck coming to fill that bed? Are they leaving their beds? Um, are they choosing their beds with a certain wind direction in mind? Are they leaving their beds into the wind? Um, so that's going to be part of an upcoming analysis that we're doing that I am very, very fascinated to see the results of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to uh, get get one of you guys back on here to talk about that because that was uh, you just listed off like half of the questions I had about <laughs> about, uh, about betting and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'll be looking forward to, to seeing some stuff from that. Uh, what about movement? Now, obviously, we've been talking about, you know, a little larger scale movement and, and overall home ranges and stuff. But uh, did you look at any kind of, I guess, day to day type movement in your study as far as, you know, how much these deer are traveling day to day and is it consistent or is it you know are they moving all around their home ranges from day to day or you know i guess anything you can you can tell us on that side of it um yeah so one of the on average during the hunting season and there you know there's very so much with the phase of the rut and everything we're talking about but you know on average during the hunting season a lot of these bucks are moving uh, roughly three to 4,000 yards per day, um, which, you know, I don't move anywhere near that much. That seems like a lot to me, but they're, you know, they're in breeding mode. Um, and so we, we use two different, uh, terms. Well, uh, the, the two terms that I'm going to talk about right here are, uh, net displacement and total displacement. So, uh, those are two terms that we just use to describe how far an animal has moved over the course of a day. You know, a deer could move a total, he could travel a total of, let's say, 500 yards, and he might end up 10 feet from where he started because his path was, um, he was turning a lot and making really sharp angles and, you know, not leaving a very small area. Like if you just got up and paced around the kitchen, you might walk a quarter of a mile, but you're going to still be at your stove when you quit. Um, so that's, that's, uh, total displacement. Net displacement is how far he ended up from where he started. Right. So as we look, does that make sense? Does yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I kind of confused myself saying that, so I figured <laughs> I figured probably confuse other people. Yeah, so, so total displacement is, is the total distance traveled and net displacement is how far you ended up from where you began basically. Exactly. Okay. Yep, exactly. So if we look at, you know, kind of over the course of the hunting season, you know, October through, you know, it's varies on where you're at with where the rut is. But for us, um, you know, archery season opens in the beginning of October and then our deer season goes through January um, in most of the state. So if you look at uh, total distance traveled, you know, the total displacement that we talked about, it's, you know, it's relatively low in October, November. They're not moving a whole lot, a whole lot. But once you get into the, the two week pre rut phase that we have it broken into, which is, you know, uh, about, mm, we've got it broken down into pre rut and then early rut. 
and then a two week peak rut phase and then late rut and then post rut. So we've kind of got, you know, five different rut phases, um, to describe these different movement patterns. Um, total distance traveled peaks actually in the early rut. So two weeks before peak of the breeding is when the total distance they travel, uh, peaks. So that's just when they're like, you know, moving a lot, trying to find receptive does. And then when they get to the peak of the rut, they're not moving as much because presumably a lot of them have already found a receptive doe and that they're actively breeding her. Um, and then it kind of tapers off as you get after uh, the peak of the rut, it drops as you get into late rut and then total distance drops again once you get to the post rut. So um, it's a very n- nicely shaped, normal bell shaped distribution. Now, if you look at net displacement, on the other hand, it continues to increase all the way from October through the post rut. So, you know, it gets higher from October to November and then into December, it gets higher even still and then January even higher still. And so basically what that indicates is that they are searching a greater area as the rut progresses. Um, So, you know, as once they breed, you know, once maybe once they breed, a couple does, they're going to expand their search radius a little bit and end up farther from where they started because they've just bred the does that were right there. So they're going to go a little bit farther and look for does. And then maybe once they find a doe or two there to breed, they might go a little bit farther and look for does. Um, so that's that's some of the stuff we've done with daily movement rate. We've looked at the time of day they're moving and when you know it, deer crepuscular, believe it or not. Um, yeah. Oh, I was going to have you touch on that. So, so peak <laughs> movement. Daylight and dawn, or uh, dusk and dawn, I guess. Yep, a lot of dusk and dawn. Um, however, the and this, you know, I've seen uh, I've seen some posts from I think uh, I think Doctor Lashley over in Florida. I saw him post something on this, but um, I know they've done some work looking at the peak activity periods by property. And some of the stuff they found and that what our data suggests too, is that depending on where you're at, or maybe even depending on which deer you're looking at, they're going to be active at different times of day. So I know like, you know, on one of the properties they were looking at, I think they were, you know, they were still crepuscular. They were still most active at dawn and dusk, but they were more active at dawn, for example, than at dusk or vice versa. And we see that same thing with, um, with our data where, uh, and it, this depends again on what time of year you're in, if it's early rut, peak rut, post rut, whatever. But um, it deer, the collared bucks that we looked at tended to move a little bit more in the evenings than they did in the morning. There were still, you know, two peaks in uh, peaks and movement rates throughout the day, but the one in the in the evening was a little bit higher than in the one in the morning. Um, the other thing to note there, you know, when we break up the the course of a the course of the daylight hours when you can be in the woods actively hunting deer into morning, midday, and evening, the midday rates are still pretty stinking high. Whether or not you're in October and, you know, in the, for us, that's like, that's, you know, September and a lot of other places in terms of what's going on with the rut. Um, if you're in October, they're still moving quite a bit in the middle of the day. They're moving more in, you know, morning and evening, but they're still moving quite a bit in the middle of the day. And that was kind of a, you know, eye opener for me a little bit when I started, you know, kind of looking through some of this data and crunching numbers. It's like, hey, like, you know, I'm one of those guys that, you know, I'm willing to sit in the tree stand as much as I need to, to feel like I need to kill a deer. But a lot of times I feel like if I don't see something by, 
you know, nine o'clock in the morning, like it's time to go get a hearty biscuit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like those deer are moving a lot then, and, you know, very successful hunters will tell you the same thing that like, you know, if, if, if it's a time of year, especially during the peak of the rut, when, um, deer are extremely active and they are on the search for receptive does or chasing does, whatever they're doing, like you're, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. If you're climbing down out of the tree stand at nine o'clock, because it's liable at 10 o'clock, a deer is going to walk by probably not as it's still not going to be as good of a chance as it, you know, at dawn or dusk, but there's still a good chance. Right. Now, when you, when you say they're moving, they're moving a lot, even, even during midday, is that, is that just overall movement? Are they, are they getting very far from where they're bedding or is it just more moving about in their bedding area? Mm, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I don't think I have not looked at that and I don't know an answer to that, but that is a very, um, good question. So that basically gets it looking at the total to net displacement throughout the go. course of it, yeah, throughout the was... course of a day. And that is, uh, an excellent question and something that, um, we will also get back to you on. All right. Yeah. Not a problem. Not a problem. I know I'm, I'm asking, uh, questions outside of the scope of, of your, your, uh, project here. So I didn't, I don't mean to, uh, yeah, throw, throw you off. Oh, it's okay. Now you mentioned early on, I know this, again, this, this wasn't your project, but that, uh, a big part of the original project, I guess, was, was looking at hunting pressure and, and how it was impacting these deer. Um, can you, can you talk any on that or do you, do you have that information as, as far as what they seen, how these deer reacted to hunting pressure as far as their movements and uh, how they use their home range, that kind of thing? Yeah, I can give you the uh, Spark Notes version on, on it. Um, Colby Henderson or like Dr. Damaris or Strickland, they would have a much more um, in-depth, detailed response to this. But basically what we what we observed there and again shocker the more hunting pressure there is the less deer are moving during daylight hours so basically as hunting pressure increases as the season progresses and goes from archery season into rifle season um the proportion of movement starts to favor nighttime hours versus daytime hours and essentially deer just avoiding hunters um uh, another interesting thing there, and we see hunters actually selecting for certain landscape features more than deer are because they think that's where deer want to be. So, you know, we see hunters select food plots harder than deer do. So like hunters want to be in food plots more than <laughs> deer want to be in food plots because they think yeah. that deer want to be in the food plots. And it's not that the deer don't. The deer certainly do want to be in the food plots, but you know what they want to do more is not get shot. So they're going to do it. They're going to do it at nighttime hours. Once the hunters leave, I guess you mentioned, you know, they're, re they're reducing daytime movement. Once, once the hunting pressure's on, did you see any of these deer? I mean, are any of these deer strictly nocturnal or, or I know this is speculation, but just looking at the, the, the deer you've looked at over this time, would you, was there any that you just thought there's no way that deer would ever get, killed by a hunter just with his behavior um this is uh my personal opinion um so i'm not speaking for anyone else here but i am confident that a nocturnal buck does not exist i'm confident there's not a single white-tailed buck and it probably extends to other species too 
deer species, I am confident there is a not a single nocturnal buck. Now there might be some that move, you know, more than others at night, but by and large, they're going to move most at dawn and dusk. Now, a lot of times we say, oh, he went nocturnal, but that's just because we don't know where he is. We assume that because we can't find him, we don't knew, know exactly where he's moving, that he's nocturnal. Well, maybe your trail camera is in the wrong spot. Maybe he, you know, moved his home range a little bit. Now he's only coming to where your trail camera is on the periphery of his home range at night. Like there's not a single deer that we've looked at. And this applies to, you know, all 60 plus deer that we have data on. They are all still moving quite a bit in the daytime. Um, it might not be where they're doing it at night. Oftentimes they're using different areas, um, but they are all moving dawn, dusk, middle of the day, at night. They move. Yeah. I, I know what, what I meant to ask you on the, on the last time was uh, I wanted to ask you what I just did, but also you had mentioned, you know, obviously they, when pressure's on, they, they spend more of their time moving at night than during the day. Did they also, did you see it? Did they shift the use of their home range as well? I mean, did they, you know, if hunting pressures in, in one area, did you see them kind of shift to another part of their home range or is it more just the timing of when they're moving? Um, that is, that is another very good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't looked at that specifically, but what I can say is that it seems as though there's more variation from week to week or month to month and where they are in their home range versus daytime to dark. So like, you know, they might be using one area of their home range a lot during October and they might be using slightly different areas at dawn or at a during daytime and dark but there's going to be more variation in October versus December than there will be within October and day and night or December day and night does that make sense yeah yeah it does well luke as as we kind of i guess wrap things up here is there anything else about your research that that maybe I missed or we, we didn't discuss that that might be of interest to, to our listeners? Um, I guess kind of the management take-home points here, and, you know, it's kind of hard to incorporate some of this stuff into management if you can't put a collar on a deer and figure out if he's mobile or sedentary and where he's going. But, you know, like we and y'all, NDA, y'all do a really good job of this, preaching the value of cooperatives. You know, deer don't respect property boundaries as is they don't respect low fences they don't respect you know the painted tree on the property line they don't respect any of that um even the sedentary bucks now the mobile personality bucks like they don't respect county boundaries they don't respect state boundaries like we've got you know, we got bucks swimming the mississippi river and he's spending you know i mean that's just like what in the world um so i think one of the take-home points here is that this uh, if you have reason to believe, or if you, you know, have evidence that you've got a buck that you really want to kill and he's mobile, like get up with your neighbors and be like, Hey, like, let me know if he's on your property during summertime, I'll let you know if he's on my property during fall, vice versa, whatever, and put together a plan on how to capitalize on that. Because, you know, if a lot of these bucks, like they're probably covering, 15 20 30 or more properties the mobile ones and it's like you know how do you it's just really hard to manage for that and try to plan to hunt that deer if you're doing it all by yourself and you've got 250 acres um 
I guess the other one, and this is the other big take home here, and this is more from a, you know, statewide management perspective, but it's kind of, it's kind of got a little bit of a sticker shock on it as far as CWD concerns. Um, this concerns me. It concerns, I know other biologists that, you know, we've shared this data with that not only are we, you know, trying to be very intentional about um, putting regulations in place that restrict uh, deer breeders and hunters from moving deer across, you know, state boundaries, county boundaries, whatever. Um, that's hard enough to do, but you, you, it's impossible to stop deer from doing it themselves. You know what I mean? And especially when we've got, I mean, we've got some of these deer in CWD zones making these movements. And so, you know, the, the difference between a, a yearling buck dispersing three miles from his natal home range to his new permanent home range and him just setting up shop in his new home range permanently, the difference between that and buck 140 going from, you know, CWD positive area in Mississippi to CWD tentatively CWD negative area in Louisiana and then back and forth twice a year. Like that's huge. You know what I mean? He's spending time with CWD negative deer herds. Then he's spending time with CWD positive. Then he's going back to CWD negative. So it just, you know, it creates a lot of management complexity that um, is very important for, you know, biologists, us as biologists to consider when we're making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about working cooperative cooperatively with your uh, neighboring landowners there got it made me think the uh, I, I just have 15 acres here that i own and and i was able to shoot a buck well shot two bucks off of it last year but I, the early one i shot earlier in the season i was getting him on camera he was he was coming over onto my property like clockwork every evening just you know about 30 minutes before dark and i had made the assumption all along even after i shot him i just I assumed that he was bedding just over the property line on, on my neighbor's property. And because, you know, he was showing up on my property in daylight, just, just before dark and come to find out, I don't know, months later, I ended up meeting, not my, not my next door neighbor, but the, the property on the other side of that, I was talking to him. We were swapping trail camera photos and everything and come to find out the, the buck that I shot, he it was actually showing up on his camera on his property <laughs> earlier in the evening before it ever got to mine. So it, it was moving, wow. it was moving well before dark wow. uh, and starting, you know, on his property and making his way over to mine. So it, it just goes to show, like you said, you know, you, you never know what these deer are doing or um, how many properties they're crossing. And yeah, that's uh, incredible. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of information that if you, if you had that information, you know, prior to when you killed him, you might have been able to do it more effectively, you know? Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, because I, I was like, <laughs> I was, it was almost comical how careful I was trying to be making my way up to where I was hunting because <laughs> I was just assuming this deer was bedding, you know, just right over the line. He's probably <laughs> seeing me come in, you know, because there was several times where, you know, he's coming in like clockwork. I go up there to hunt and he, he's a no show. Yeah. Like, yeah, man, that deer, he's seeing me. And then they come to find out he's been two properties over. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's working with your working with your neighboring landowners is a good thing. And, it, and it's been pretty cool. Uh, we like I said, we swapped a lot of photos and stuff. And a lot of the deer I was seeing here on my property, he was seeing on his. But, you know, there were some 
that I would show him and he'd be like, yeah, I never seen that deer and, and vice versa. So yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have that relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, Luke, um, first of all, just thanks so much for, for coming on here and taking time out to talk to us. Uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, I always enjoy hearing about this type of deer research and, and I know our, our listeners do as well. Um, what, I guess, what's the best way for those who want to keep up with what, what you're doing and, and what the, uh, the folks at the MSU deer lab are doing, what's, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So we are active on all the big social media platforms minus TikTok. We, I'm not getting into those waters. Um, <laughs> we, or you just search MSU deer lab on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We, um, produce content weekly or bi-weekly on all of this stuff that we've been talking about today we do a lot of habitat management stuff we do a lot of deer population management stuff so anything from gps collars to carrying a drip torch through the woods like we cover it on our social media platform and all of the stuff you know we're you know msu deer lab we're a research unit at mississippi state university so all of the stuff we do is science-based um you know i shared some opinions that i have today but, you know, by and large, everything that we talked about today is based on science that will get published in a peer review journal. Um, so it's not like, you know, we're just making observations on a whim that we observe. Right, like right. This. We got I've seen a deer do this once. So yeah. that's how it is. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I, you know, before I, you know, came to the deer lab and started, you know, going to grad school here, one of the reasons I really appreciated what the MSU deer lab did was because I felt like I could go to their Facebook page or deer university podcast or whatever and get science-based hunting information, which is like, it seems like that's just so hard to do these days sometimes because all you hear is people's opinions. And I love hearing hunting stories as much as the next guy. But what I also love is the science and knowing that what people are saying is backed up by data. Yep, exactly. So yeah. anyway, all that to say that if you're interested in that kind of stuff, go on any of the social media platforms, Deer University podcast, and give us a follow. Yep, I, I enjoy seeing uh, seeing the stuff you guys post. That's uh, that's where well, really, what sparked sparked me to contact you to start with. Just some of the the GPS data stuff that you guys have been sharing on social media and uh, among you know habitat stuff as well. So. Um, yep, good stuff there, and we'll be sure to put links to that in the show notes so those folks can find you guys and, and give you a follow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Oh yeah, yep, absolutely. We'll we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely get you back on here. And like I said, I, I enjoyed it and appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Luke Resop. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. 
From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.